Good morning, new friends. Uh, before, thank you, first of all, for starting us off with a moment of real humanness and vulnerability. I think it's a good tone for the day. Um, I am going to ease us into the conversation of today and tomorrow by getting deep into a long view of the nature of civilization and the current state of our social contract. So before we do that, that easy entry into the conversation, just take a couple of deep breaths and remember whatever feels natural to you. We don't have to all do it together, but we're all in this space together, breathing air into lungs, hearts beating and bodies in a place on lands, being humans in a space together. In talking about the long nature of civilization and, and where we're going, I wanted to start by I brought a couple of my teachers with me to help. So as you're breathing, maybe think about your teachers too. But one of the teachers is right here in the title is uh, Yotopi Yin. It's not a typo. It is actually a reference to an essay by Ursula K. Le Guin from 2015 about the nature of utopia and dystopia. Yotopi Yin and Yotopi Yang views of where humanity is going and what our ideals look like and I'm going to let her be a bit of our guide for our conversation about how we think about where we are, how we think about the moment that we're in that Johanna just helped describe for us, and how we think about the opportunity presented by the moment that we're in that Arundhati Roy described as uh, the pandemic as a portal. Our minds are still racing back and forth, longing for a return to normality, trying to stitch our future to our past and refusing to acknowledge the rupture. But the rupture exists. And in the midst of this despair, it offers us a chance to rethink the doomsday machine we have built for ourselves. Nothing could be worse than a return to norm normality. Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It is a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. And if we are in this moment of transformation, one of the questions I might have us start thinking about is we have a lot of conversation over the course of the last challenging and confronting last few years that have accelerated conversations that are old, that, that, that we have been in for a long time. But there's this increasing conversations about how the cracks in our social and civic institutions are signs of collapse. But what if those cracks aren't signs of collapse, but they're actually the first signs of this new transformation? How might we greet those cracks? How might we imagine our response to them? How might we imagine hedging against the worst consequences, but hoping that we are going somewhere new that we have been longing for for a long time. If we're talking about a moment of transformation, one of the central questions is from what to what? And I would, I'm gonna suggest today, using uh, Ursula as a guide between Yin and Yang, that, that part of the imbalance that we find ourselves in, that we find ourselves transforming from is an imbalance between the feminine and the masculine in modern civilization. And that part of our path forward is finding new balance between those things. 
there are many imbalances and challenges that we face that underlie the sort of fundamental nature of civilization. Civilization being the cultural river that we all live in. The stories and the values and beliefs, the systems that we often don't recognize. It's sort of the water that we swim in. Sometimes it's hard to notice the water, right? People are probably familiar with David Foster Wallace's old joke about uh, the two fish. And uh, the old fish swims by and says, hey boys, how's the water? And they say, what the hell is water? And sometimes it's hard to notice the water that we're in. Um, but we're gonna try to talk about some of the nature of that water today and how long we have been out of balance. That many of the systems and the problems that we push against, that we're trying to transform, that we wanna change, are actually exacerbating consequences of a much older imbalance. When we talk about masculine and feminine, feminine and masculine energies, the Anantan is the Andean word for complementary dualisms, the balance of opposites. It's the language from South America, very similar to yin yang, and the way Ursula K. Le Guin talks about yin and yang is as a process a complete interdependence and a continual intermutability. These are energies that underlie the entire universe and come before our biology and come before our sociology and anthropology and culture. So they come before things like sex and sexuality and gender and are in all things. But they are distinct and important energies and they have distinct and important functions in balance in humanity. Feminine is the open and the fluid, the infinite, open to possibilities, capable of creation. And the masculine, sharp, decisive, narrowing, protective, exacting, decisive. And I think how we think about the nature of these energies helps us understand what it means to be out of balance. I think to a large degree, our critique and analysis and, and, and attempted understanding of how our society feels inhumane is very much a catalog to some degree of what it means to be too masculine and for how long we have been that way. We're familiar with what a too masculine society feels like. It's dominated by stories about the dominion of man over nature, the preponderance and importance of growth, and, and especially in our economic language and our market-based language. It is oriented toward outcomes. It's oriented toward achievement as meaning and productivity as, so, as our source of purpose. Even our conversation that Johanna started us with this morning about thinking about the 20% of that time that is ours, whose is the rest of the time? Eh. This is something that we need to consider is how we have sold or been encouraged to sell our time to others for the benefit of whom and allowing a story about the nature of our human dignity to be tied to our value as labor, as an economic input in economic systems that may or may not be for us. And they're almost, because of the separation and the dominion language relative to how we think about our relationship to the natural world are almost certainly not for anybody but humans. But they're certainly 
in most cases, not even for all humans. And so how we think about uh, what it means to be too masculine, also important for us to understand why, why did the imbalance tilt toward masculine? When did this happen? I suggested that this dysfunction was older than we tend to think. And what I would suggest today as part of an echo of some of my other teachers that you'll hear throughout this, Arundhati Roy was the first. You'll hear Daniel Quinn and Bell Hooks, a little bit of Octavia Butler, David Graeber, some other friends that are here hopefully with us in this room. That we, we tilted in the direction of overly masculine as a survival mechanism, but it was hundreds of generations ago. This isn't just a function of technology advance and social media. This is not just a function of industrial revolution and the acceleration of industrial culture. This goes much, much further back. It goes back to a time when for thousands of generations, humans as smart as us lived in a good way in equilibrium with natural systems all over the world. And then some of our old ancestors began to experiment with our, their relationships to plants and animals and creating more stable, less mobile communities. Started to think about animal husbandry and agriculture. And then some of these groups in the communities started to think about what it might look like to put all of this, all of the land we can reach under cultivation, total agriculture. And at, moment, at moments when they were also becoming less mobile, and they started to create surpluses for the first time by mistake. Humans had never had surpluses. This was a new thing. But when you add more food to a system, you get more of the beings in the system. This is the law of ecology. Humans are not immune from this. So surplus leads to population growth. And now all of a sudden, thousands of years ago, we're sort of on a treadmill very quickly, not on purpose, but it has changed our relationship to the natural world. We are now worried about not having enough for the first time. We invented our own anxiety. The anxiety of enough, enoughness is something we created by mistake thousands of years ago, but now we have it. And now what do we do? And now we need to make sure we can maintain the surplus because now we've made our diet less diverse and we're more dependent on these things that we are growing. And now we're, we're nervous about our relationship to the natural world. What if we, what if we what if the crops don't come this year? What, what, do we, what do we do? The world had been full of food for thousands of years and now we are concerned because we have started to take on a role that is not ours. There is something that humans are meant to do when we are part of natural systems that we have in, that in this moment have started to shirk the basic responsibility of being human in natural systems. And it puts us on this treadmill where now we have to start changing our relationship to nature. We're now separate from nature. Nature is now trying to kill our crops. Nature other is now threat. We are separated, separated. And separated from nature means we aren't in our role, but we're also lonely for the first time. We no longer have this community of all beings that we are a natural part of, and we are at odds with the natural system. And that puts us also at odds with and, and forces us to start to become the source of our own creativity and ideas. And in a world where other is dangerous, much like the pandemic, it, we begin to tilt toward the masculine for 
survival, for safety and security and protection. No longer is it safe for us to feel open to the infinite possibilities of spirit and source. We are now at war at some level with, between humanity and the world. And we, over a long period of time, over generation over generation, this conflict and separation and loneliness leads us to uh, narratives like dominion. And we're f the, the dominion narrative is very familiar from Judeo-Christian mythology, but it shows up in lots of other places as well. Everywhere we start to see this sort of runaway challenge and, and humans separating from nature, we also start to see thousands of years before Judeo-Christian mythology starts getting written down, flood myths starting to show up in cultures all over the world. Wherever this is occurring, people are looking for a reset already. Three, the, the first written one of these that we know, where we have a good sense of is from Akkadian culture, in the Eridu Genesis from 2000 BC. So we're a couple of thousand years now here today in this room on these lands, in this body, in this moment, these bodies. 2,000 years after humans started wondering about how do we reset our relationship to nature, we have been on this treadmill for a long time. And we have built and institutionalized this, these mistakes and misunderstandings and imbalances, our separation in all kinds of systems and institutions that feel increasingly inhumane that are increasingly fragile, abstractions that increasingly make less and less sense to us. They force us into all kinds of mental gymnastics that force us to alienate ourselves from our own bodies and from our own, the truths that we feel in our bones and in our blood. When we start seeing these very linear hierarchies of power with masculine at the head, it, is a, it, it continues to be a doubling down on a mistake, on a story, over and over and over again, generation after generation. Positive feedback loops. Now we start getting into the realm of industrialization and the absolute lionization of the idea of efficiency and growth. That these are moral goods. They are good in and of themselves because they are related to how we continue to manage the anxiety of our inequality and our surplus. And we start to even see in sort of our newest, newest iterations of, the, of this sort of neoliberal capitalistic religion, market-based public goods, which is economically oxymoronic and a little bit nonsensical, but becomes, has become the foundation of a lot of how we think about social impact and social change. This is the narrowing, the, the increasingly uncreative society that we are sort of feeling more and more constrained and less and less humans, less and less human. And what I would suggest is that this river has a sense of inevitability. It now, after a couple hundred generations of doubling down and doubling down and doubling down, story after story, abstraction after abstraction after abstraction, it is very hard to feel the ground. It takes a lot of work for us to really feel human in good relationship and right relationship with the natural world. It is very far away from a lot of our day-to-day -day life. And that the inevitability of that river makes it feel hard to change, but it's just a set of choices. 
It is a set of choices that we have made over and over again, starting as a survival mechanism, but then gradually all of this sort of narrative starts to tell us that this river is human nature. Humans are by nature driven by a profit motive. I don't, not sure that one's true. I'm not sure a lot of these things that we tell ourselves every day that sort of are built into how we are forced to interact in order for the systems and institutions that we have stacked on top of all these stories and all these abstractions need to keep going. That it is the sustaining of those systems that we are now subservient to humanity as an input to our own thinking, our own systems, our own institutions, our own laws, our own policies, humans as input, rather than seeing story and myth and magic and nature as a system that we are part of whose purpose is the, the equilibrium and healthy growth and expansion of that system. And in a world where we have built this inevitable feeling river, moments like the pandemic create opportunities for us to start to inspect this in ways that are easier to inspect the habit when we're not in it. But there's sort of a rubber band effect of like snapping back to what we were used to because it feels sort of safe, right? Like again, the sort of overly masculine story we chose because it made, it made us feel safe. Now, the reality is that most, many, many, many people and most beings are wildly unsafe in this story. That we have actually created something that forces us to deny and ignore the, uh, the unsafety and insecurity of, of most beings and many, many humans in order to narrow and narrow and narrow and narrow and continue to justify the story that we're in. So how do we get out of this imbalance? part of the action required to move us toward a new balance, not backward. Our future's not behind us, but a new balance is over-investing and making active, constant, consistent choices to choose feminine wisdom and leadership. And this is where we get into the conversation about, I'm talking about balance, we're talking about equality versus equity. We talk about justice and changing conversations. My friend Xavier Ramey always talks about how well equality might be the goal, but equity is the path. And the distinction being that equality treats everyone the same, whereas equity treats some people differently in order to create equality of opportunity, equality, and to make up for inequalities over dozens and dozens of generations. That this is the equity uh, of the feminine and masculine that's required of our generation to start to address the, the, the difficulty that we live in. And to start thinking differently about a new balance means not that we ignore either part of this conversation. Remember, Ursula Gwynn talks about this as complete interdependence between feminine and masculine. But how feminine creates an openness to possibility opens us up as a species back to a much broader sense of what is possible for us. That the narrowness that we have worked our way into over the course of a couple hundred generations is a much, is a sad and small way of thinking about human life. It's lonely and it is exhausting. 
and this greater possibility manifesting these things in practice requires that we use masculine energies for manifestation in service of feminine leadership. And this is a huge, like a complete inversion of how most of our structures and these hierarchies that have been overly masculine for generations and generations expect us to behave. And so how we start to move in this way, this choice is the utopian path. When Ursula Le Guin talks about utopias and dystopias, she reminds us that yin and yang is a process. It is not a perfect stasis. And so the process, the, the utopian path, is the process by which we move in the direction of balance. And it's available anytime. We can start making these choices constantly, all day. But they're really uncomfortable. And they're particularly often uncomfortable for people who have benefited from overly masculine stories. And it's important for people like me to be making this choice all the time. When we think about this as a process, what is important is that we start to, we focus on how we move in the world and how we move with openness and connectedness and how we set aside the fear and worry the futurelessness that a lot of us feel at this moment in time, this uncertainty about where we are going as a society, what that does to our capacity to be human. So, so what does it mean, what do I mean by being more human? It sort of seems like be more human is sort of a silly given statement. What, what I might suggest actually is that we aren't good at being human and we haven't been be good at being human for a long time that we have become something else. We've become homo economicus or homo laborious. We're like humans working in an economic system differently than humans working in a natural system that we are meant to be part of and in a broad universe full of possibility. And so what does it mean to be human? What is it that we are meant to do? What is it that humans are meant to do in natural systems? If we think, if we can forgive ourselves for our estrangement, nature is infinitely forgiving, always will welcome us back, needs us to do our job, needs us to do our work in, in nature systems. But if we can forgive ourselves for our estrangement and move ourselves back toward our role in natural systems, this how we move, this feminine way of thinking about what we are open to and what we are doing is a good guide. Nature is a good guide for how to behave. We don't need to make a big deal about being human. We just need to remember what it means, right? We have a tendency to sort of uh, lionize, no pun intended, nature's sort of biggest, most powerful beings at times. And I, a good friend of mine had a dream, dreamt with a lion once who told her that we tend to, tend to it be inspired by the action of the lion, but we miss the fact that they spend most they spend most of their time napping in the sun. That there is a nature to how we are meant to be. There are things that we are meant to do, and that as we think about this, it is not the outcomes that I am focused on. It is how we choose to move in the world, how we interact with each other the expectations and assumptions that we build into our social contract and community contract that will change the outcomes that come as a result. And 
what is important to recognize as we think about this movement is that we have lots of effort in the world to make uh, the cr cruel systems that we have lived in less cruel. And I'm all for that. Less cruelty is good. But less cruel is not not cruel. Reform and transformation are not the same thing. One of the fundamental scary like powers of civilized with the pejorative capital C society is its ability to co-opt reform as part of, well, we'll just make it a market-based public good and everything will be fine, but make sure you keep working hard and make sure you make money first and then you can go be a spiritual being later in your own private time. Um, that ability to co-opt reform is part of what keeps us from getting to actual transformation. And so one of the central fundamental things that humans do as the custodial species, as Tyson Yonkaporta likes to say, is that we take care of others and we pray. These are the things that humans do that other animals don't do. The great brains and the consciousness that, come, that comes from them and there are other beings with great big brains and frontal lobes that have probably have consciousnesses that we just don't fully understand. It wouldn't make much sense for evolution to end with humans. It is a process that we are part of and that we are that is still ongoing. But the the cost or the opportunity of of that of our consciousness is more responsibility for others, not different rules. The rules of nature systems apply to us just like they apply to the bees. And so does the magic. And so we when we plug back into nature's systems, we start to have access to a source of creativity and opportunity that we can be open to that is safe. That we can start to embrace the world through, through this lens of openness and connectedness and curiosity and be in right relation and good balance with all beings in ways that we have fundamentally forgotten how to do. And if we allow that sort of kindness and connectedness and equilibrium to be the non-negotiable parts of how we engage each other, engage the world, the outcomes will become different. And it is, that is as true about our relationships as it is true about our political movements, about power building, about how we think about transformation and social change and political change is that if we move and be, act differently, we are going to get different results. And that it, that focus on moving and being human and moving differently in the world makes things like Machiavellian, winner-take-all, burn-it-all-down strategies make no sense. Because the outcomes aren't up to us. We are terrible at this. Humans as the source of, all, of, all, of, of creativity and ideas and magic, we aren't supposed to be this way. All the way back in human history, when Greeks talked about muses, creativity was something that visited us and we went crazy when we tried to hold on to it. It's not for, that's not our job. This is our job. Take care of others, pray and do ceremony. And so if the spark isn't ours, the effort is, the focus is, the willingness to practice with discipline, doing everything we can to be human, which is really hard because we're really out of practice and we are gonna stumble and we are gonna wrestle with how these things intersect and interact with a modern technology empowered 
AI-driven, innovation-driven. Oh, I said the buzzword. Everybody drink. Sorry, too early for that. Maybe not. I was the first one. Uh, we had a joke going. Uh, how does this interact, this humanist interact with a world of, of like constant and rapid and incredibly fast innovation? The answer is those, that innovation has to be in service of something. And we know we are living in a good way with humans and with each other. We know what this feels like. It feels connected and we feel this like sense of lightness and, and a lack of friction and a sense of flow. We've like built an entire psychological language around the idea, this idea because it feels so rare and so novel that we like try to hold on to these perfect, incredible moments. That's how we're supposed to feel all the time. That's humans being humans in natural systems as part of something connected to other beings, connected to a more infinite source of possibility and creativity and spark. That's how we're supposed to feel all the time. The fear and the loneliness and the exhaustion, that's the capital C pejorative civilized river again, getting us too familiar for too long that exhaustion, the sense of carrying too much, of being alone, of only understanding a single generation, of being cut off from wisdom of our ancestors and having no sense of the future, that's, that's the river we gotta get out of. The flow and the ease and the discovery and others as sources of wisdom and creativity and opportunity and power, not threat, that's humans being humans. And so if that's our natural state, our relationship to innovation also has to change. And this is uh, Arthur C. Clarke, who's another, uh, another uh, science fiction author, is his third law. Any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. If that's true, the inverse is probably true too, though. That magic is probably indistinguishable from sufficiently advanced technology. That uh, the, the porousness and the gap between these lines, technology and magic, might be more porous than we tend to think. That seeing magic, spells, language used in a, in a perfect way, in the right way to create an outcome sounds a lot like coding to me. And I wonder whether it's our lack of understanding, our lack of access to wisdom that gets in the way of our understanding of these technologies or these magics whichever word we're more comfortable using. So if we can pull on innovation in service of something, we are willing to accept the responsibility of our generation. And this is one other teacher, Arkan Lishwala, talking about the, the transformation times we're in, Pachakuti, the space-time of transformation. One of the most important tasks of our generation is to collectively mend the split between the genders and between many other complementary opposites, back to Yananton. It is crucial that we mend the division between feminine and masculine, men and women, head and heart, spirit and matter, sacred and profane, dark and light, above and below, left and right, outside and inside, earth and sky, chaos and order, and humans and nature that we get back to being humans. And that movement, that step forward, that act of forgiveness, self-forgiveness and forgiveness of others that gets us back into our role in natural systems also gets us access to a much bigger universe. 
And in that much bigger universe, imbued and filled with feminine and masculine energies that's in all things, we stop being humans against, no matter how rancorous our civic life and political life might feel, and how, how, how our uh, opposition might grasp onto the power that they have. In a world where we are part of something bigger, the world is full of allies. Because this is how we are meant to be, together, with a much, much, much broader set of, set of beings than, than just humans. And so if the world is full of allies, we come back to the language of Arundhati Roy and suggest that what comes next? Reimagining the world, only that. Thank you. Thank you.